At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? Grab a Bible in front of you, 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're picking up our 10-week journey. And the reason I'm asking you to pick it up is because I'm going to read super fast. There's a lot of detail as we continue in the Church Why Bother series that we're in. This is a letter from Paul to Timothy, the Apostle Paul to Pastor Timothy, and he's given some pretty specific instructions about some things that are going on in Ephesus where Timothy has been pastoring. And um, when we get into this passage in particular, it's pretty detailed and it's pretty direct. And you might even think, as I'm reading the text and you're reading it, that it's pretty harsh. It's not, so just stick with me, it's not too harsh, but Paul's letter has a very specific purpose. And that is he's addressing some issues in the church. He's setting some things right. Some things have been slack. Some things have been negligent. And so he's writing to Timothy about that. Do you remember chapter one? It's false teaching. A lot of it starts with bad theology, bad teaching. And so he's correcting the issue of false teaching. Chapter two, he moved on and he said, men and women and spiritual authority, let me set some things from an apostolic perspective. Let me set some things there for you to build on as the church. Chapter 3, he's addressing who are the ones who are qualified to lead the church. So that's the pastors, that's the elders, that's the deacons. It's possible that they had some people who were assuming leadership that weren't supposed to be there, and so Paul is setting this right. And chapter 4, this was last week, there were some silly myths and poor teaching that was underway, and so Paul says to Timothy, why don't you set the example with good conduct? Chapter 5, at least this half that we're in, the neglect of widows he's trying to set correct. Next week, at the end of chapter 5, mistreatment of the pastors and elders. He's going to address that. A little bit in chapter 6, he's talking about servants and masters and how they should relate. And then, interestingly, he circles back to false teaching. Chapter 1, chapter 6, both about false teaching. Again, tells us our theology is actually important. So even though Paul wrote this letter to correct specific things in that specific church, in that specific city, there's some good stuff for us today, some sound principles for us, and I'm going to do my best with the Spirit's help to bring out some application for us. Because, so church, why bother? Because the church is the people of God, called to reflect the glory of God and to do the work of God. Let me unpack those three things briefly. We're God's people. We're called by his name. We sit under his authority. He has preserved his authoritative word for us to know and to to fall underneath. And so we align ourselves under scripture. We reflect God's glory. You know our lives, whether you want it to or not, if you call yourself a person of faith in Jesus, your life is a credible witness to a watching world. And so it must reflect God's glory. That's what we're called to. 
And we're also called to carry out God's work, which is nuts to me that God would trust us, the church, to be the way that the world knows about the message of salvation through our faithful proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. He trusts us. Just nuts, like I said. We're supposed to help people know Jesus. That's the work of God that we perpetuate, that we continue. And all of that is why at Woodside, we exist to glorify God by making disciples, whether that is a disciple who's just meeting Jesus for the first time or if that's a disciple who's just taking steps to live a bit more in step with the way of Jesus, to apprentice under Jesus. So church, why bother? Because we're God's people. And he matters. And it matters how we, difficult, how we navigate difficult circumstances and people. It certainly mattered for whatever the, the church in Ephesus was facing, and it sure matters to us today. We need God's help and wisdom to navigate some difficult situations in a distinctly Christian way. So with that, we're in the first half of 1 Timothy 5. Timothy's using familial language here because he wants to impress something in our minds. The church relates as a family. It relates as a family of God. It's not just Paul saying that, it's actually Jesus. Matthew 12, Jesus literally asked the question. His mom and siblings were standing over here, and he said, where's my family? He didn't point to them. He pointed to his disciples. He said, those who do the will of my Father are my family. Hugely significant in that culture that he's turning away from biological family and turning toward another group of family that he's not even, another group of people he's not related to. Hugely significant. So if it matters to Jesus, who is the family, then it matters to us. And so Paul is laying out here for the family of faith, the family of God, he has three ways that they relate that we're going to jump into. Relate with honor, relate with discernment, and relate with responsibility. So, buckle up. He writes in verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. So don't rebuke is the first thing out of his mouth, which is interesting because the whole rest of the chapter feels like he's rebuking them. He's going to say some things to them that feel a little bit like a rebuke. But remember, he is, he's correcting some things, and he's helping Timothy remember what he's called to as a pastor. Do you remember two weeks ago in uh, chapter 3, I think it was around verse 4, a pastor is called to manage his household well. Timothy happens to be single, but Paul is helping him to realize he has to manage his spiritual household well. Listen, brother, you've got to put some things in order there. If you're going to parent well, if you're going to be a faithful pastor, you've got to put some things right. And he recognized Timothy's a young guy who's an outsider. He's not, he wasn't born in Ephesus and raised up there in the church. He's from another area. Paul sent him there. Paul knows that his youth is going to be a little bit of an issue with some people. That's why last week we saw in chapter 4, verse 12, he said, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth, but set, set a good example. Have integrity. And he says, you can't turn a blind eye. 
You can't turn a blind eye to the issues that are going on there. As a pastor, you have to address it. You have to manage your household well. But how you do that is hugely important. And so Paul is saying to him here, you treat one another with honor in the family of God. Now, Newt Larson was a pastor for many years. Pastor Jacob actually served underneath of him. And he wrote a commentary And in his commentary, he acknowledges, none of us like when people bring up our flaws, do we? It doesn't feel right. We shy away from that, right? We don't like that. But he said, even so, a pastor, he writes this in in a commentary, a pastor must not shrink from the obligation to exhort and correct. The heart of the pastor and the manner in which he approaches is crucial. So Paul's saying, don't rebuke. You know what rebuke is? In the Greek, it's a severe censure. Don't rebuke someone. That's too harsh. Rather, encourage. Now, we know encourage isn't just say nice things, right? Encourage them, just praise them. No, he's still talking about correcting some things. But it's a less gentle approach. And do you know what I love? The root of the word here, encourage, is the word paraclete. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's the same word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit. Think of the work of the Spirit. He is the encourager. He is the comforter, certainly the convictor at times. So the Apostle Paul is telling Pastor Timothy, encourage your people. Come alongside of them in a less gentle way to correct them. It's a beautiful thing of how those two relate, the the work of the Spirit and the work of this ministry in this church. And he says, who who are you supposed to address? Who are you supposed to correct? Let me tell you, there's four. And I guarantee everybody in this room is going to find themselves in here somewhere. Older men, you're going to have to correct some older men. But you do it with respect, as you would a father in a healthy family. You respect them. Young men, you're going to have to correct some who are peers or who are younger than you. Don't you lord your position over them. Don't do it. You treat, it with, treat them with humility. Come alongside of them as a brother. Older women, when you have to speak truth into their life, you speak with gentleness. You speak with affection as you would a mother. And young women, when you have to correct young women, you honor them as you would your flesh and blood sister. No funny business. It's not in God's church. You do it with purity. You treat them as a chaste sister in Christ. And sadly, there is way too many examples in our culture of improper or exploited behaviors from pastors to young women. It's not supposed to be. You do this with purity. Do you find yourself in one of those, right? You're in one of those categories. We're a multi-generational church. I am part of a multi-generational life group. That's why we want our life groups to be multi-generational as much as possible. I've talked about them before. I brag on them. But I love my life group. It's because we've got singles, singles, young marrieds, old marrieds. We've got divorced. We've got moms and dads and grandmoms and granddads and babies and boys and girls and people in different spaces in their spiritual journey who have walked with Jesus Some of them have walked with Jesus longer than I've even been alive. And some of them are pretty new. 
And you know what? We need each other. It's just a microcosm of, of the church, the, this big church, this gathering, and even bigger than us. It's one of the things that we hope people experience in their life groups, and we're better for being together. And quite honestly, we need each other. We really do. I want to ask you a favor. If you're in this room, don't look at me. Take a minute and look around at people in this room. Do you see the differences in yourself? Yeah, don't look at me. I can see your eyeballs. Look, look at each other. I can see it. I see the diversity in age, gender, socioeconomics, background, primary language, education. I know some of you people. Right? This is who God has gathered in his family, in this room, in our gathering room today. It's beautiful. We need each other. And sometimes we need each other to keep us focused and to call us back, right? To draw us back in as a paraclete, gently. But honestly, we do it with honor. Can't just be a pastor who does that. Can't just be your life group leader. We are called to relate to one another with honor. We're also called to be accountable to one another, to bear with one another. And so we care and shepherd with one another with honesty and with honor. That's a bit of what Paul is talking about here. But then we're going to pick up again verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. Let's park there for a minute. What or who is a widow? Don't want our Western eyes to project onto a first century text, what that is. In Greek, it's literally a woman whose husband has died, but it carries with it the idea of being forsaken. So think about this. In the first century situations, you could have a number of women in the church that he's talking about. You could certainly have a woman whose husband has died, and now she is alone, she is forsaken. Paul also talks elsewhere about women with unbelieving husbands. So it's possible that a woman came to Christ and her husband said, well, because you chose this, you're dead to me. And he either divorces her or he just abandons her. And now she is destitute, she is forsaken, she is alone. Could also be a woman who was never married. Not quite as common in this first century culture as it is today, but it could be a woman who is alone. And you also have to recognize in the first century culture, it's different than ours. Legally, when I die, my assets, unless I make different arrangements, and I haven't, my assets will go to Allie, right? They go to the spouse in our context. Not so back then. If a man dies, his assets go to sons. Sons have no expectation or obligation that they have to do anything with that money apart from what they want to. So it could leave a woman completely alone and in need. And so Paul's mind likely is these women who don't have a physical provider and are forsaken and alone. And so he will proceed to give very detailed instructions that when we care, our care is given with discernment. So here we go with verse 4. This is one you'll want to follow along because I'll read quick. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. 
She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger women marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. Whew, that's a lot. That's a lot in there. Okay, didn't I tell you, these qualifications feel a little harsh, like he's coming out with a baseball bat. But his heart is to correct some practices in that church to weed out people who really don't deserve support from the church. He's not trying to get out of obligations. Rather, he's trying to help the church to be discerning, to be discerning so that it only cares for those who truly have need. You have to remember, the early church was so well known for its care of the vulnerable. You remember Acts 6? We looked at that a couple weeks ago. The daily distribution of food for the widows in Jerusalem? Well, the early church just embraced the call to care for the vulnerable in such a good way that there were people who got their names on the list that shouldn't have been on the list. They really don't have need Now, many people have negative connotations to welfare, but you have to remember, God's heart has always been for the vulnerable and for those with need. In Psalm 68, he is called the protector of widows. Baked into the laws that we read in Deuteronomy, there were laws that cared for the widows. There was one that, that had to do with a tithe that benefited not only the priests, but also widows that could participate in that. If you were a farmer, if you owned a vineyard, there was a Deuteronomy law that said you leave some things unharvested so that other people, namely widows, could come and glean and receive benefit. So God's heart has always been for those who need care and support. But we know human nature is the same then and now. People take advantage. We're all looking for a handout when there truly may not be a need. And so Paul's heart is not to burden the church, but to identify and to discern who really has need here. Let's think through this carefully. I heard an old British pastor, professor, preach through this uh, passage, and he, he just affirms, because, of, because it feels a little bit like Paul is being harsh, he said, you know, Paul really respects and honors the Christian widow. He really values her, which is why verses 3 and following just are all this 
wisdom and discernment for how to actually figure out who are those that we truly should honor. And so he addresses these four situations. Let me just provide a little bit of overview. Four situations that he speaks to. First, widows with family. Verses 4, verse 8, verse 16 references widows with family. And he says, you know, they should come off the list because their families should support them. And he certainly didn't mince words, did he, in verse 8? You remember what he said? If the family doesn't care for them, they're worse than unbelievers. I mean, talk about shaming. (laughs) So these should come off the list because their families need to step up and care for them. In verse 5, he speaks to widows who are truly alone. And he says, you know, one who is truly alone and has need, who is godly, Of course they will rely on God, right? God is their supplier and their provider, and he he speaks to how they rely on God. They have godly hope. They remember God and his faithfulness to them in the past, and they put their hope in God, but they also pray, pray night and day. You know, I am so thankful for some women of our church who are prayer warriors. They pray for me by name, for you by name, for our children's ministry that goes on just down this hallway, for our student ministry, for needs in our church. They pray for our community that we're planted in. They pray for missionaries. They pray for Woodside Bible Church, the whole church. They pray for the global church. It is such a blessing that one of the ways that they they express their godliness is by being so faithful to pray. And Paul's calling out these. We ought to honor people like this. I'm so thankful for them. And he says, care for widows who truly have need, godly widows who have need. But then he moves on to verse 6, and he's talking about widows who are unfaithful, and he uses that self-indulgent term and calls them spiritually dead. And I think what he has in mind here is that these are not true Christian widows. They're using some newfound freedom to go and live with promiscuity and to live as they want, but also to receive a handout from the church. And he says, these women are not even Christians. And so they should come off the list. That's not who the church should should support. And then the fourth situation or category, he talks about young widows. And he says, that's verses 9 through 15. And he says, young widows should also come off the list because there's a possibility of remarriage and support from a husband. Now, verse 9 talks about the age of 60. I will not make you raise your hand if you're north of age 60. But in antiquity, 60 was the line of old age. Praise God, it's not that anymore. Any amens? (laughs) Young at heart, right? Paul encourages these women to remarry, which is interesting because if that rings a bell in your mind, he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, that he would prefer that they remain unmarried. He says, "The, the unmarried and the widows, I prefer that you remain single. So why does he write one thing to the Corinthians and he writes another thing to the Ephesians? I don't know. It'll be one of the questions I ask him. But he does say, if, if you can remain single, right? 
He talks about passions in both, both passages here. He talks about, like, if, if you're going to disdain the name of Christ, then it really is better for you to marry. And so some scholars think that there may have been some type of a pledge that women took, young women took, in order to get support from the church, you're committing to remain single. And it seems as if there may be some of those women who are continuing to receive support from the church, but they're going out and they're going to disdain Christ's name, which is why he talks specifically about the, the temptations and the passion. And he said, it would just be better if you got married. You manage your household well, and then you had a good testimony. And on top of that, verse 16, he talks about idleness and busybodies and gossip. Maybe you've heard the old phrase, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Yeah, Idle lips are his mouthpiece. Neither of those things are godly or constructive actions, whether you're young or you're old. And he is saying we need to prevent damage to the church and to Christ's name. And if there are people who have too much time on their hands, it would be better if they not just sit around and become busybodies and be idle and disdain Christ's name and his reputation. And so, why don't you just get married? If God allows that, get married. Maybe you find yourself in one of those categories. Maybe not. Let's talk a little bit about application. Whether you do or whether you don't, the point remains, widows matter to God. Can we agree? He's just unpacked this whole passage about care for the widows with discernment. And so widows are important to God. He gives them great honor, and we also should as brothers and sisters. Widows, the elderly, the young, the unborn, all people, dignity. We have dignity. Why? Because we are created in God's image. Our theology dictates how we treat people, especially how we treat the vulnerable I remember reading an article last November, and I was, I think the word is dismayed. I was dismayed reading it then, and I went back and I found it again this week, and I was dismayed all over again. It was an article on the ethics of assisted dying in Canada. There was a law enacted in 2016 that allows for the severely or terminally ill and disabled people to pursue the clean term that they are using now is medical assistance in dying, but it would be physician-assisted suicide. That's the word, the, the phrase they don't want to use anymore. And the article talked about next year in Canada, the euthanasia law is going to be expanded to include those with mental illness. And so if you feel like you're struggling a little bit and you have mental illness, just have a couple conversations with a doctor and we'll take care of that for you. I mean, that is awful that that's the world that we live in. So let me affirm, Christianity is so distinct in that we value the elderly. We value people with special needs. We value all people. The widows, in this case, we value them. Honor your father and mother. The fifth commandment. It's important to God. It should be important to us. We need widow's wisdom. 
We need the elderly's wisdom. That, that's all through Proverbs, right? We need their experience. We need their faithfulness. We need them to teach us. He's already unpacked. He's already unpacked that. In, in a, a parallel passage in Titus, Titus 2, let me just read this. He says, older men, be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Men, we need you to be faithful, godly mentors who we can follow, who the young men can follow. We need that of you. Maybe that's a little bit of what, what he was having to correct. Older women, you have to help those who are younger. You have to teach them. The internal godly life has to come out in your life. Be reverent in behavior. Don't be slanderers or slaves to much wine. Teach what's good. Train young women. Young women, they, he assumes in, in at least the Titus passage that many of these young women are going to be married and have children, but love your husbands, your children. Be self-controlled, be pure. Right? We need you to have a good testimony, young women. And to the young men, it's pretty cut and clear. Self-controlled. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Church, church, we have to do this with discernment. When we correct things, when we approach things, we have to do this with discernment and with honor, right? But we also have to actually step up and take responsibility. And that's his third point here as we finish out this text in verse 16. He says specifically, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. And here's the crux. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So Paul's bringing it back to this who's really in need. Widows. Widows who are left all alone and put their faith and trust in God alone. And so there's some responsibilities. Families, step up. Take responsibility. Care for the widows in your family. That's what he's writing. In our day and age, we have a bit more social support, don't we? But don't shirk from the responsibility. Listen to what Paul has written. Families take responsibility. He calls the men in Ephesus here. He said, you know, men, why don't you take one of these godly women and make her your wife? so that the church doesn't have to be burdened for it. He's calling men in this text here, in, in this church, marry them. And he's saying to the church, fulfill your God-given and God-enabled responsibility and provide for these godly women in a way where they truly have need. But that's not all who's responsible when, when we read some of these different verses. The widows are actually responsible. Verses 9 through 16, he, he says to them, this is the character of a godly woman. If she was married, then she was faithful in her marriage. If she raised children, then she did that well. That she had a reputation for good works. That she showed hospitality to people. He assumes that she served and sacrificed and had such a good testimony. So widows are held responsible. And in this text, he, he's saying that's why one of the reasons he doesn't want the younger widows to, to be supported is because they, he doesn't want them to just sit around and get themselves into trouble. He wrote to the Thessalonians, you don't work, you don't eat. Don't be lazy. 
right? Don't be idle giving help to those with too much time on their hands and too little interest in good godly works is a bad idea. It does more harm than good. That's really what he's saying. So there's responsibilities for the church and there's also responsibilities for the widows. Now, I don't know where this falls in you and your life situation, so here's a couple of thoughts, just some ideas for us to think through. I know, because I know some of our stories in this room, some of you care for the elderly in your family. Some of you care for family with special needs. That can be a pretty thankless job. It can be overwhelming. It can be quite costly, both to your schedule and your wallet. But God honors your compassion ministry. God will not forget your faithfulness. He will not. So continue and press on. You're modeling the way of Jesus of showing compare, care and compassion to the vulnerable. There are others of you in this room. You care for some others. Maybe it's little kids. Maybe it's another circumstance and you feel like sometimes your tasks are just pretty menial. One of the great lies of social media is that you see other people's lives and it looks like they're living a good life, right? They're having all these great experiences and here am I. I'm just washing bottles again, or I'm doing dishes, or I'm changing diapers, or I'm whatever the case may be. And you fill in the blank. Colossians 3.23 reminds us that we work, whatever we do, we work heartily as unto the Lord, not to men. God will remember and God will reward you. There may be some in this room who have been shirking in your responsibility to those who are forgotten, whether in your actual biological family or maybe in your spiritual family. Galatians 6.10 reminds us that we're to do good to all, but especially to the household of faith. So I wonder, who have you been overlooking? Who in our church have you been overlooking? You know, widows... People who are forgotten, they lose a lot. Certainly there's the financial component, right? If it's a two income and it goes down to one income or, or something, there's a financial component to it. There's a physical component to it and maybe not being able to do everything all on your own. I remember helping Chuck Hall. He and I went over to somebody's house to like flip a mattress and rotate it because the person didn't have the strength, didn't have the, another person to help them. Right? So there's a physical component. There's also the social component. Our culture is not really good at knowing what to do with single people. And our culture is not very good at knowing what to do with the elderly. So sometimes they just get a little left out. Especially in churches with a lot of families and communities like we live in with lots of families. Is there someone that you might be overlooking is there space in your home, your schedule, your budget, even in your life group to remember someone who might be forgotten, to welcome them in, to care for them with honor? I wonder if there's a name or some situation that the Spirit of God might be prompting in you today because of this text.
Let me tell you, there is great blessing and benefit. There is some cost, but there's great blessing and benefit for caring for others, and it really builds our character, and it certainly points out our testimony and what we say we believe. When I was growing up, my grandma, very special lady to me, she lived with us. She had some real health needs, and so she moved in with us, and she ended up just staying permanently. I don't think any of my cousins were going to watch this online, but I was her favorite grandson. <laughs> and I think it's because she lived with us, and we had such a wonderful relationship. I loved her so much. I'm so thankful that I had the privilege of years of her living in our home. But I also recognize, especially now that I'm older, it cost my parents a lot. They sacrificed, but it was worth it. And they would say that as well. It was a wonderful ministry that we had and that she had to us. And so as we conclude, church, why bother with any of this stuff? Because we're called, aren't we? We're called to a better way of love and action. We're called to see one another as family. Healthy family, that is. And so it's time to step up. There are uh, a lot of challenges to that in our day and age. We live in such an individualistic, me-centered world. It's really hard for us to think communal over individual. So how do we get better? Well, let me tell you, if you try to just muster it, it's going to last about that long. So let me encourage you and point you to the truth that it's actually the gospel that motivates you. Do you rightly see and know that without Christ, you are destitute, forsaken, alone, and unable to do anything on your own? Right? Do you see yourself as that? Do you see yourself as the vulnerable when it comes to your spiritual condition? And to know the way that God lavished his love on you and on me. Took the blame and penalty. Though he knew we were rebellious from the moment that we sucked in air and cried, we were rebellious. And yet, he loved. He chose us. Amen. Do you see that God in Jesus met the need that you have and that you are totally relying on him for anything spiritually? It's not you and your effort and your good works and what you tell yourself to pump yourself up. It's the cross that does that for you. Do you see yourself rightly? Because if you do, then we can't help but love other people. 1 John 4 talks about this is how we know love. It's not that we loved God. It's that he loved us and he sent Jesus. And so, therefore, we ought to love one another. Because what he does flows out of us for his glory. That's why we exist as a church. That's why he's placed us on planet Earth to be faithful. To be faithful witnesses. So, in his family, and in this family, we show honor. We care with discernment. We take up our responsibility to do that for God's glory. Let's pray. God, we're here for you. 
We're here for you. We need you to change us. We need you to help us as we consider this, as we try to grow in our understanding that it's more than just us, but it's what you're calling us to. And so thank you for making us part of your family. Thank you for the comfort and encouragement that you provide, even in correction through the Holy Spirit. We couldn't do life. We couldn't do church. We couldn't navigate the complexities that we face as people and even as a spiritual family apart from your help. So we invite that. And we just call out the name Jesus. We do. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, we want to sing and worship you and honor you and invite you to continue making us more like yourself. That's the goal. In your name I pray, amen. Hey, why don't you stand and let's sing the name of Jesus. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.